Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, we discuss two decades of nutrition science with one of the leading experts in the field. We have published many reports in scientific literature about specific aspects of diet and health outcomes, but these were in dozens of different journals, and it would be really hard for anybody, including even people I was working with, to put together the pieces and really see the big picture that was emerging. And the picture was that diet was incredibly important in many ways for promoting health and well-being. In this week's episode, we sit down for an in-depth conversation with Walter Willett, former chair of the Department of Nutrition here at the Harvard Chan School. He'll speak with us about the updated version of his new book, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, which compiles decades worth of evidence about the components of a healthy diet. Plus, Willett weighs in on the issues that will dominate the nutrition field in the years to come, including obesity and how climate change will force us to change how we eat. We've created a food supply that is really incredibly destructive to our planet, to our environment, and also it's destructive to human health as well. It's, it's hard to imagine that we could have created something that's been so destructive. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Lovett. It's Thursday, October 12th, 2017. And I'm Amy Monomiro. This week, we're sharing an in-depth conversation with one of the world's leading nutrition experts, Walter Willett. Willett spent 25 years as the chair of the Department of Nutrition here at the Harvard Chan School. During this time, he was a leader in the field of nutritional epidemiology, helping establish the basic principles of healthy eating, while also highlighting the dangers of things like trans fats and sugar-sweetened beverages. And Willett, along with co-author Patrick Skerritt, have collected this research in their book, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. They just released an updated version, building upon the original book's first release in 2000. I sat down for an in-depth conversation with Willett to talk about the book, what's changed in nutrition since it was first released, and the issues that will dominate the field in the years ahead. I started our conversation by asking him why the time was right to release an updated version of Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. I think one of the important uh, elements of this book is that uh, eating in a healthy way is not a sacrifice in terms of pleasure and and enjoyment. That uh, for that reason in this book, there's about 80 recipes included uh, that give some examples of how we can put this into practice. I asked uh, about 20 of my colleagues who are chefs and uh, people engaged in the food service to contribute some recipes. Uh, So this is uh, something that could be an adventure uh, uh, and invite people to try some new things. Uh, And uh, definitely a lot of it, most of it, maybe all of it can be more enjoyable and interesting than the sort of mashed potatoes, gravy and roast beef that I grew up with. Uh, The reason for releasing the first edition of Eat, Drink and Be Healthy back in 2000 was that we had published many Uh, reports in scientific literature about specific aspects of diet and health outcomes, but these were in dozens of different journals, and it would be really hard for anybody, including even people I was working with, to put together the pieces and really see the big picture that was emerging. And the picture was that diet was incredibly important in many ways for promoting health and well-being. No one factor, no silver, silver bullet, but together all the pieces were adding up to having a huge beneficial impact. In, in the last 17 years, nutrition science or knowledge of healthy eating have come a long way. So, so what do we know now that maybe we didn't know then about some of the foundations of healthy eating? The context was back in the 1990s and into the early 2000s, the conventional wisdom was that 
the primary target for nutritional advice and change should be on reducing total fat in the diet, which meant load up on carbohydrates. And this was advocated by many people in the nutrition community. The food industry responded to that, created many low-fat, high-carbohydrate, high-sugar products, and that was thought to be a good thing. But our data was really telling us another story, that this high intake of carbohydrate, particularly refined starches and sugars, had adverse metabolic effects, and that was showing up as increased risk of cardiovascular disease and and diabetes and uh, other conditions as well. So our book at that time was in some ways a bit revolutionary. Uh, It was definitely out of the mainstream to be talking about uh, healthy fats being good for us uh, and being careful about the type of carbohydrate at the same time. Uh, This was based not just on one single study. It was based on many pieces of evidence, so we were quite quite confident that this was uh, this was important. This was really representing a, a, the right direction for a healthy diet. Uh, since that time, uh, during the last 17 years, a lot more information has become available that has supported this conclusion. So in some ways, the most important part of this book is, is not that it's entirely new and revolutionary. It's really that we were on the right track. We have a lot more evidence that that was important. And there are more benefits that we've seen emerge as well. Are we still feeling the effects, like, I guess, in terms of the American diet as a whole, are we still feeling the effects of that kind of push to go low fat? Is there still work to be done in order to get people to understand that one, fats can be healthy and beneficial, and that two, you need to be careful about the kinds of fat you're choosing? There's still work to be done. (laughs) uh, These changes uh, in direction occur slowly, uh, and there are still uh, even professionals steering people, especially overweight people who often can least tolerate high amounts of carbohydrate toward that direction of diet. Uh, so uh, it's, I think uh, it's important for people to have some basic understanding. This, you know, what's more important than taking care of our own bodies or the bodies of our family and our friends? Uh, and uh, there are still many people that are not taking advantage or able to take advantage of the, the best information we have at this point in time. Have, have we seen progress in the U.S. in terms of people starting to consume more of the healthy fats and maybe less of the unhealthy fats. I mean, trans fats have obviously been a huge issue. So is there progress in that area at all? We've had some major progress on the dietary fat front. Uh, Some of this is because people have become aware and are making better choices, but also in parallel with informing the public, we've pushed hard on manufacturers to improve their products. And uh, some of the levers were uh, banning trans fats in restaurants, putting trans fat on the food label. And in most cases, the manufacturers who have removed trans fat have uh, not just loaded our foods up with saturated fat, but actually replaced those trans fats with healthy fats. So when we look at the fat composition of our food supply today in 2017, it's actually much better than it was in 2000. And so you mentioned at the beginning that one of the, I guess, kind of benefits of this book is that it does kind of compile all of this nutrition research into kind of one one place. And that seems to me to be really important at a time when there is a lot of conflicting news information about fats. I mean, butter's back, butter isn't back. So I guess how could consumers maybe use this book to maybe learn some tips and learn ways to build a healthy diet for themselves? 
uh, it is really important, I think, to put all the pieces together. Uh, there's no single study which will give you the right answer. There's no magic bullet in the diet, or, uh, no magic fruit or vegetable, or one single dietary factor uh, that will make you healthy. Or, on the other hand, if you don't do it, uh, uh, it really condemns to uh, uh, disease and, and suffering. Uh, in some ways, I make the analogy with an orchestra. A healthy diet is like having all the pieces and having them in balance. And uh, it, it is really important to look at that whole picture, make sure our diets are composed of a balance of healthy uh, aspects of diet. And, and by doing that, you can really have a full impact, uh, the benefits of healthy eating. It seems like one of the trends in the last few years has been this kind of growing awareness of the dangers of sugar and sweetened beverages. There are more soda taxes taking hold. So over the last decade or so and longer, I mean, what has the evidence started to show us about the dangers of these sugar sweetened beverages? And I, and I guess the second part of that, has there been any progress in that area in terms of reducing consumption? This has been an important area, and it's part of the whole picture of carbohydrate quality. Uh, and uh, it's sugar sweetened beverages are turning out to be one of the most important aspects uh, detrimental aspects of carbohydrates in our diet. It's partly because we can consume so much sugar in such a short time. Uh, in the standard 20-ounce serving now of a, of a soda, there's about 17 teaspoons of sugar. So it's a huge amount all of a sudden. Uh, and uh, back in 2000, we had some suspicious suspicion that that was not a healthy thing to do. But we really, uh, since that time, developed a very solid basis of uh, documenting the adverse effects of high of sugar sweetened beverages uh, on both weight gain, uh, uh, diabetes risk, cardiovascular disease risk, and some other adverse health outcomes as well. So we can be much more specific uh, about the adverse effects. Uh, we are much uh, more strongly based. And because of that, uh, as you mentioned, we've been able to uh, develop soda taxes in some places, uh, made great progress eliminating soda from schools. Overall, soda consumption is down about 25% in the United States, which is a huge step forward. And it looks like we're already seeing some benefits uh, in, uh, in uh, reductions of type 2 diabetes. So this has been an area where we have made some important progress. And so you touched on this idea of carbohydrate quality, and you made that orchestra analogy. So is is kind of the conventional wisdom now that you, not to demonize any one type of food, carbohydrate or fat, but more that you need to make quality choices in each of these categories? I, I think that's a helpful way to look at it, to really focusing more on the quality than just one category is good or bad for us. That seems to be what the science is, is telling us, uh, that uh High-quality carbohydrates would be whole-grain, high-fiber forms of carbohydrates, particularly if they're uh, consumed intact, not milled into fine powdery flour. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, finely uh, milled white flour uh, is rapidly abs absorbed and converted to blood glucose, has many adverse metabolic effects. And of course, sugar uh, also has adverse uh, health consequences as well. That refined starch is often overlooked. With too much, with the focus on sugar uh, is important, but we can't forget and get too out of balance again that it's only part of the carbohydrate picture. Potatoes also are very rapidly converted to blood sugar, 
and uh, you know small amounts now and then no problem but i grew up in the midwest where it was normal a day or once or twice a day to have a, that white mountain on your plate and that definitely has adverse effects and related to higher risk of type 2 diabetes and weight gain. So I want to um, spend a little time talking about obesity. Um, and one of the things that, that you pointed out, when it comes to obesity, we've seen great progress when it comes to children in terms of the obesity rate flatlining a little bit, but it's increasing among adults. So why do you think we're seeing this disparity between between children and adults? Uh, rates of obesity have really increased since the early 1970s in both adults and children. Uh, we've paid a lot more attention to the childhood obesity problem uh, for a couple of reasons. I think we are sort of responsible for children in ways that are not exactly responsible like we are for other adults. Uh, there's more political consensus that we need to pay attention to children. Uh, and it's maybe I think also it's uh, it's easier to blame somebody else, kids, uh, not ourselves, uh, for for problems that we have. Uh, and for all those reasons, we've put in many places a lot of effort, uh, big time effort into schools. So we've banned sugar sweetened beverages in schools. We've in many places paid more attention to what children get. Pediatricians are have become much more proactive about advice on sugar-sweetened beverages and, and diets in general for children. And we've uh, sort of neglected that adults are uh, at least as big a part of the problem in terms of health out of weight gain and the health consequences of weight gain. Uh, and we've given less attention to adults. So it's been encouraging with all that effort on children that it looks like we've uh, blunted the obesity epidemic, and some places uh, obesity rates in children are actually starting to go down uh, in communities like New York City and Cambridge, where there's been more intense effort. We can uh, where rates are still too high, uh, but they've actually it looks like we bent the curve uh, in in those areas. Uh, but we, without letting up on efforts for children, we really do need to focus additional efforts on adults. The basic problem is that that really uh, almost invisible pound or two gain in weight uh, per year, which is typical of Americans uh, from age 20 to 50, adds up to a huge weight gain that has many serious adverse consequences uh, by midlife and later. And so knowing that in terms of kind of the cumulative total weight gain, does that offer an insight into ways to maybe address the obesity epidemic that it's not a short-term issue, it can be an issue over 20 or 30 or 40 years. The fact that this uh, creeping weight uh, is so important does tell us we really do need to change our approach in medicine and, and public health as to how we deal with uh, weight gain in adults. Uh, all too often, uh, recommendations don't kick in till you're already obese or overweight plus complications. You already have diabetes, hypertension. Uh, that's not the right way to be dealing with this problem. The problem is uh, dealing with a healthy diet and uh, active lifestyle, uh, even during age 20s, that uh, physicians should be counseling physicians and other health care providers should be counseling their patients about diet uh, and activity levels uh, during that period of time, uh, taking action at the first few pounds of weight gain, not waiting till somebody's overweight or diabetic and having con complications. Because oftentimes it's much more difficult to be active once you're overweight and have diabetes or other kinds of uh, joint problems, other kinds of complications of uh, being overweight. And you kind of touched on it there, but I mean, obesity is, it's such a large and complex problem, 
But are there key areas that you think that maybe we should be focusing more on going forward in the next in the next few years or so? Yeah, so obesity, the causes are very complex. It's not a single factor. Uh, and uh, it's not entirely within the control of individuals. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should just throw up our hands and ignore it because uh, individuals can make an important uh, difference by their choices of food, by uh, how they integrate physical activity into their daily life. Uh, for example, we have seen that uh, the, the biggest single factor is sugar-sweetened beverages, and many people can um, make a big difference in their weight just by eliminating sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, uh, highly refined uh, carbohydrates, uh, for many people, also add to that problem, whereas whole grains, fruits, uh, vegetables, uh, are related to less weight gain. So shifting toward what we understand for other reasons is a healthy diet. The quality of the diet has an important impact on weight gain. Uh, but we can make this a lot easier for individuals uh, by making healthy food available and sort of the default uh, in, uh, first of all, schools uh, for children, but work sites uh, and employers are starting to get this message now, too, that it's a double win uh, for the, both the employer and for the employee to, to have healthy food and avoid uh, weight gain and the consequences of it. So I think one of the interesting trends that's really gained awareness in recent years is this idea that our diets are also increasingly linked to climate change and the environment. So what do we know now about the links between our diets and climate change? The links between our diets and climate change are so important that I, in this new edition of the book, devoted a whole chapter to that topic. Uh, the I think the, the climate change is something that's occurring far more rapidly than any of us thought uh, 30 or 40 years ago. We thought it would be something that would be experienced in hundreds of years or a thousand years, but we're seeing that year by year temperature going up. We're seeing the consequences of climate change already flooding, uh, drought, uh, and uh, this will be picking up at a more rapid pace uh, even if we didn't make any changes. But if we look at the picture, we're on track to greatly exceed what are uh, agreed upon as the international limits of what we should be doing in terms of uh, controlling climate change. Our, and food, our food choices do have an important impact among the other factors that contribute to uh, climate change. Uh, in particular, uh, production of uh, red meat uh, is there's an extremely uh, important source of greenhouse gases, uh, uh, both methane and carbon dioxide. Uh, on the other hand, more plant-based diets uh, have much lower impact on greenhouse gas production. And as it turns out, those same changes shifting from a high meat, particularly red meat diet, to a more plant-based diet uh, will not only reduce climate change but have important health benefits as well. Uh, so th there is a double win here. And what I guess what are some some practical changes people can make to their diets? I mean, obviously, I guess, I'm guessing reducing red meat is probably a good start. But are there other changes people should think about making that I guess would not just benefit the environment, but also I mean, it would probably benefit their health as well. In addition to red meat, uh, the probably the next biggest environmental footprint comes from dairy foods, and uh, at the current dietary guidelines actually recommend three servings of milk per day or milk equivalents in terms of cheese. Uh, that's a huge amount. It's actually almost double what we're currently consuming and nobody 
uh, in the Department of Agriculture is paying serious attention to this. In fact, Congress passed a law saying that the Department of Agriculture actually can't mention effects of diet on climate change in their guidelines. And so it's basically the report of the Scientific Advisory Committee was censored. Uh, so in some sense, this chapter of my book is uncensoring a bit what the Scientific uh, Review Committee concluded about diet and climate change. Uh, so uh, instead of uh, red meat, uh, think about uh, plant-based sources of protein. Uh, it turns out nuts are one of the healthiest possible protein sources, and that switch from red meat to nuts can make a huge impact on both health and climate change. But there are lots of other alternatives, uh, uh, soy-based uh, sources of protein and uh, other forms of legumes or beans uh, need to be considered more often. It, the uh, Consumption of beans is very low in the U.S. diet now, but they can be prepared in many uh, really tasty, interesting ways. I'm afraid too many of us grew up with that can of baked beans, uh, which is really pretty dismal uh, a meal uh, if you're just having that straight. But uh, there are you know, hundreds of different kinds of beans. Almost every traditional culture has found ways to make them uh, really taste, uh, tasty, interesting, and uh, an important part of a healthy diet. So uh, we don't have to make that step all at once, but uh, step by step, shifting more toward these healthier sources of protein uh, will uh, be yes, good for our family, good for our, our own body, and definitely good for the climate and uh, Earth's health as well. On some level, does in order to get traction in this area, does it, I mean, I guess it probably has to go beyond individual choices and really get at addressing some of the government subsidies that promote dairy consumption, you know, beef consumption. So, I mean, is that is that really one of the root causes that needs to be addressed? Uh, certainly, it would be much more helpful if we had policies that promoted a healthy plant-based diet or food system rather than uh, the kind of subsidies that we uh, put into a food system that supports high animal product, uh, especially beef consumption. That uh, One fact I find particularly interesting is that if we look at how our grain production is used uh, domestically in the United States, uh, of all the grain that we use domestically, uh, about a third goes to uh, f conversion to ethanol to fuel automobiles. If we just drove automobiles that were a little bit more efficient or smaller, we could get rid of that. About 45% is used to feed animals, which uh, make us unhealthy, particularly the, uh, when fed to cattle. And about 15% is used for uh, manufacturing, which basically means high fructose corn syrup for the most part. And only 10% is actually consumed by humans. So we've created a food supply that is really incredibly destructive to our planet, to our environment, and also it's destructive to human health as well. It's it's hard to imagine we, we could we've that we could have created something that's been so destructive. The, the the previous almost two decades seemed to really focus on the scientific consensus around dietary fats and you know low fat is not best and kind of really building that consensus over what a healthy diet is. Looking forward over the next two decades, I mean, what do you see will be the issues kind of dominating nutrition science? Is it climate change sustainability? Are there other issues on the horizon that you think people should be focusing on? I think uh, everything we need, we do uh, needs to be looked at through the lens of climate change and, and sustainability. If we don't have that, the world, our children and grandchildren, 
will experience will be a very dark and dismal world with a lot of what we enjoy and expect uh, uh, really severely damaged. Uh, but given that that we have to do things within a, the context of sustainability, uh, I think the biggest challenge is actually implementing what we know already. Uh, we do see and have done several published analyses that we could prevent about 80% of heart disease uh, with diet and lifestyle by uh, essentially adopting this uh, simple package of uh, factors that are healthy in the diet, moderate physical activity, not smoking. We could have a dramatic impact, but only about 3% of the participants in our study were following that healthy uh, package of lifestyle. Uh, and uh, benefiting from this uh, huge uh, reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. And the same applies to several forms of cancer. Looks like we could, uh, with a healthy package of diet and lifestyle, prevent about 90% of type 2 diabetes. So the potential impacts are huge, but the gap between what we could achieve and what we're achieving now by diet and lifestyle is so huge that a lot of our efforts, I think, have to be uh, focused on uh, basically implementing, uh, translating what we do know in, into practice. And there's uh, there are many ways of doing that. Part of it is uh, just conveying information and knowledge, but also creating an environment uh, that uh, supports and makes these healthy choices easier, more affordable. Uh, and uh, that's going to involve almost every institution that we experience, our worksite, our schools, our uh, cafeterias, our food services. Uh, so this is this is a big challenge, but we are slowly making progress. We just need to speed that up. That was our interview with Walter Willett about nutrition science and his updated book, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. Willett talked a lot about the foundations of healthy eating, as well as the importance of eating sustainably in a way that benefits the environment. For more information, you can always visit the nutrition source at hsph.harvard.edu slash nutrition source. And we'll also have some information on our site, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. You can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you are a regular listener of this podcast, we'd love for you to leave a review. It helps us to know what you think about the show, and it helps more people find our podcast.